invite you to open up to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, as we were singing that last song um, just now, I was just reminded, goodness gracious, of God's activity in our church. Y'all, a year ago, we would have never imagined that we would worship together in multiple languages, multiple nations, but under one name that is Jesus. And uh, I was reading back there, I was kind of flipping through the Psalms as we were singing that, and I was reading Psalm 107, where God's Word says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. I mean, that's the truth we should cling to this morning. For his faithful love endures forever. And then listen to verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe. And that's what we do when we gather, whether we're singing in English or singing in Spanish. We are just crying out in gratitude and thanksgiving that Jesus has released us from the grip of sin. And that's why we gather as the local church on Sunday mornings to hear one another from across the room proclaiming that truth that we are gathered together um, under the name of Jesus. And what a privilege and joy that that is. Romans chapter 5, if you don't mind turning there with me if we haven't met yet. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Hope. And we've been journeying over the past couple of years through the book of Romans. And so um, you've came on a morning where we're right smack dab towards the end of Romans chapter 5. And so I'll do my best to catch us up uh, where we've been and uh, we'll process these verses together this morning. So if you'll do me a favor and stand in the honor of reading God's word at Living Hope, one of the things we're uh, we believe in is that we're for the gospel, meaning we believe it's a big deal that God wrote a book so that we could know him on a personal level. So Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 18. We're going to read down through verse 21. God's word says this, So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, the law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, we love you. Father, thank you so much for, um, God, the privilege that we have to gather together as those who love you, those who have been called by you to be your children. And God, I pray now as we continue our journey through the book of Romans this morning that your spirit would be very evident in this room this morning, God, because we need to learn from you so that we can become and continue to move towards Jesus and become like him. God, I pray this morning that you give us open ears to hear from you today. God, we don't just want open ears, Father, but we pray for very soft and receptive hearts, Lord, so that we wouldn't just hear the word, but the word would do a work inside of us from the inside out. And God, in addition to that, we also pray for obedient hands and feet, God, because we don't just want to be hearers of the word, but God, we want to be doers of the word that live out the truths of the scriptures as we're pursuing Jesus and pursuing Christ-likeness. So God, I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that everything we say and do brings you glory, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've all been, we've talked about this before in our, our Roman series as we've journeyed through these chapters, but we've all been on the receiving end and the distributing end of good news and bad news. Again, we've talked about this concept before. Typically, a conversation would go something like this. I have good news and I have bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? Just out of curiosity, because I can't remember, who are my good news first people? Like when someone comes to you with that news, you're like, give me the good news first. 
None of you. Wow. All right. Look at this. How many are the bad news people? Everybody that didn't raise your hand, you're not paying attention. All right. You need to. Let's go. Come on. Thinking of that idea of good news and bad news, it it reminded me of a story this week of a large two-engined train that several years ago was making a journey across America with hundreds and hundreds of passengers. And while this train was crossing the mountains out west to the engineer's just dismay, one of the engines on the train broke down. Well, no problem, this train engineer thought. We can probably make it to Denver on this one engine, and when we arrive there, we're going to be able to get a replacement engine, so we'll just carry on at half power. Well, several more miles down, down that train track, the other engine on that, on that train, ultimately it broke down, and that train came to a standstill in the middle of nowhere out west. Obviously, the passengers on this train were concerned. They began frantically talking to one another, demanding that the engineer give them the explanation as to why this train stopped. Well, this engineer was a good news, bad news kind of guy. He always wanted to see the brighter side of things, so he made the following announcement over the intercom of the train. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The bad news is both engines on our train today have failed, And we're going to be stuck here for some time until additional engines arrive. But the good news is this. With two failed engines, you chose chose to take this trip on a train, and you didn't choose to take it on an airplane. (laughs) Today I get the privilege, as I said last week, of delivering more good news of the gospel from the book of Romans. We've said over the last several weeks, Paul has been taking us on this really ground-level journey of understanding the gospel from his letter to these Christians in Rome. And specifically, what we've been seeing here in chapter 5 is this concept of what the Bible calls justification. That although that you and I stand before God condemned in our sin, that we can be justified or made right with God again through the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. And we're going to pick up this week on some some contrasts that we started looking at last week, where Paul is contrasting for us um, the disobedience of Adam, what Adam did in Genesis 3 in the garden, compared to the obedience of Christ. You remember we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam's sin condemned all of humanity, but Paul reminds us in Romans that Jesus is what's known as the second Adam that Jesus offers a new beginning for fallen humanity. And so we're going to continue to see. There's some things that are true in Adam. Because we're of the seed of Adam, the lineage of Adam, all humanity finds their roots in the person of Adam. Because we're from the seed of Adam, some things are true. But we have the opportunity to align our lives with Jesus, to repent of sin and give our lives over to him. And then other things can become true of us now. And so we're going to look at three more contrasts this morning, echoing a lot of the same themes that we've already seen in Romans chapter 5. But let's just dive right right in if you're a note taker. Number one is this. It's trespass versus righteousness. Trespass versus righteousness. Let me read verse 18 again to refresh our memory. Paul said, so then, as through one trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. So through one righteous act, there's justification leading to life for everyone. Paul keeps drawing our hearts back to the truth that he first showed us in Romans 5.12. 
Ready? This is going to encourage you. Ready? In Adam, we're all sinners. We saw that several weeks ago. In Adam, we're all sinners. Because of Adam's choice in Genesis 3, what's known as the sin nature has trickled down, been passed down through all of humanity because we're from the seed of Adam. And as a result, here's more encouragement. You ready for it? We all stand condemned before God in our sin. Paul told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that we are marked by death. Listen to what he wrote to them. He said, for just as in Adam, all die. Because we're from the seed of Adam, we're, we're marked by death. But we see the same transition that we saw back in Romans 5, 15, that, that Paul says, hey, these things are true of us if we're in Adam, but we can repent of sin, make the personal decision to submit our lives to Jesus, and now these things instead can become true of us. Look at verse 18 there again in your Bible. He says, we, we, we're no longer marked by Adam's trespass. Instead, we can be marked by Christ's righteousness. Notice the parallel there, the contrast that Paul's making for us. The one trespass was Adam's sin. What's the one righteous act that we see there in verse 18? Y'all listen to this. This is like the most important thing that you could ever know as a living, breathing human being. The, the one obedient act that we're seeing there, the righteous act that we're seeing there, is that Jesus Christ came to earth in the flesh, the God-man, willingly and obediently accomplish on the cross the payment of humanity's sin, absorbing the wrath of God for you and I. Paul later wrote to the church in Philippi in Philippians 2.8, he said that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That through Jesus' crucifixion, think about this, the wrath and the judgment of God against sinners was dealt with. Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, to the church in Corinth, his second letter, he said that, that he, who, who, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him, that's Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is some important stuff for us to grasp because of what Jesus did on the cross to bring humanity back into relationship with God. Man, we have the opportunity now to not be marked by death, not be marked by Adam's sin, but we can be made justified right with God yet again. Hey, I want you to look at something in your Bible, specifically there in Romans 5.18. If you have a pen and a hard copy of the scriptures, I would underline or circle the word everyone. That word can really trip us up if we're, we're not careful, careful right there because it begs the question as we think through this concept of being justified with God, if the scripture says that, that that's, um, everyone will be that, does that mean that everyone is automatically going to become a Christian. I don't know about you, but I think the word everyone is a pretty all-encompassing word. Pretty all-encompassing word that we see there, and, and we see this culturally, right? We experience this all the time. If you're a good person who does good things, then you're good enough that you're probably gonna end up in heaven someday, yeah? It's why anytime a celebrity passes away or you see an obituary, it doesn't matter what religious background they came from, people constantly say it, rest in peace, enjoy paradise. Universalism has trickled its way through our culture and our society, but is that what Paul is teaching here? Let I me mean, just tell us, universalism, that idea that at the end, all of us in some capacity, we're going to be good with God, um, is false teaching and it's not true. And that's not what Paul is communicating for us. So what do we do with a text like Romans 5.18 that uses that word everyone 
We remember this Bible study principle. This is important when you're doing personal devotions. Maybe you're in a church Bible study, anything like that. Always remember these three words. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so if you ever come across a verse like Romans 5.18, where you can start to kind of question a little bit, and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That seems to differ from other things I remember being taught in the Scriptures or reading in the Scriptures. What do I do with that? Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we take Romans 5.18 and we ask ourselves, well, what does the Bible say about how we're all made right with God? How does that come into play? Is everyone just justified from the work of Jesus? Or does the Bible teach something different? I'm here to tell you that in multiple places in the Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture, that to be made right with God again from our sinful state, that you and I, the Bible teaches, have to make a personal choice to repent of sin and submit our lives to what's known as the Lordship Of Jesus. Let me give you three quick examples from other places in the New Testament. Romans 3.22. Paul wrote to the church in Rome earlier, we looked at this verse several months ago, that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, ready for this, to all who believe. And there's no distinction. The apostle John wrote in John chapter 1 verse 12, but to who all did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, a verse that we'll look at several months from now, that if you, that's personal, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that's personal, that God raised him from the dead, what happens? You will be saved. What does that show us? Take this to the bank. Salvation is a personal choice that each one of us has to make. You don't stumble into it. You weren't born Christian You're not Christian because you go to church. I've told you before, that's like saying that you're a frozen pizza because you're standing in the freezer aisle at Walmart. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Salvation is a personal choice that all of us have to make that decision to repent of our sin, acknowledge that we have offended eternally a holy God And we need Jesus to make us right with him again. For me, I made that decision as a 15-year-old punk kid. That was 21 years ago. I just turned 36 two weeks ago, by the way. I'm getting very old, and I'm starting to feel it a little bit more. When was that time for you? Because here's an important truth from verse 18 in Romans 5. Salvation is not universally applied to everyone. But the decision to be made right with God is available to everyone. Not applied to everybody, but it's available to all of us. One person described salvation this way. I read this this week and I loved it. He said, I believe in a physician when I put my case in that physician's hand and trust him to cure me. I believe in a lawyer when I leave my case in the lawyer's hands and trust the lawyer to plead for me. I believe in a banker when I put my money into that banker's hands and allow him to keep it on my behalf. I also believe in Jesus as my savior when I put my helpless case into his hands and trust Jesus to do what I can't do for myself, to save me from my sin and to make me right with God again. Have you done that yourself? What's the second contrast we see here in verse 19? Paul contrasts for us disobedience versus obedience. Let me read this to us again as a reminder. Paul said, for justice through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, 
the many will be made righteous. Again, we're seeing some parallels here between Adam's disobedience, Jesus's obedience. Here's another word I'd circle in your Bible. It says that many were made sinners. That's a good reminder for us. Paul was writing to believers at the church in Rome. But what's this contrast here against Adam's obedience? It's Jesus, or Adam's disobedience. It's Jesus's obedience. We see there in verse 19, one man's sin, that's Adam, made all of us sinners because we're from his seed. But Jesus' obedience can make us righteous again. I was reading that this week and I was reminded of Isaiah chapter 53. If you're unfamiliar with Isaiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, written 700 years before the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah writes 700 years before Jesus ever steps foot here on earth to be the sacrifice for humanity's sin. Isaiah writes this passage in Isaiah 53, what's known as the suffering servant, where Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus ever went to the cross, describes what Jesus would ultimately do for you and I. And I want to read this to us. This is long, so don't lock your knees, all right? Listen to this. I just wanted to remind us of the sacrifice of Christ. Isaiah 53, it'll be up on the screen. Who has believed what we've heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him and no appearance that we should desire him. Instead, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone that people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he bore our sickness. It's humanity's sin. And he carried our pain, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he, that's Jesus, was pierced because of our rebellion. Jesus was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for peace with God was on him, and we're healed by his wounds. For we all went astray like sheep, and we have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he didn't open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. If you didn't know this, Jesus died because of our sin debt owed to God. When the wrath of God was poured, out of him, poured on him, Jesus literally died. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully, yet the, oh, listen, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. And when you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed and he will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant, there's our word, will justify many. And he will carry their iniquities. Verse 12, last verse. Therefore, I will, give him, I, will, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly, we could say obediently, submitted to death. And Jesus was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So Jesus did for us. So that even in our sinful state, we can be made righteous again, right with God through his obedience. Here's an important note too I would mark in my Bible if I had a hard copy. Verse 9 of Romans 5, we saw two weeks ago. 
that because of Jesus, we can be declared righteous. Now in verse 19, Paul says that we will be made righteous. What's the difference? It's the reminder for us this morning when we align our lives with Jesus, repenting of sin, trusting him as savior, that not only are we made right with God here and now, but there's a future reality that is ours as well, that someday we will be restored back to holy what God intended for us. Someday this life will come to an end. We saw that in Hebrews 9. Death is an appointment, it's not an accident. And because of Jesus' obedience, when we put our life in his hands, we get the opportunity to love and enjoy God forever. John said in Revelation 21, looking towards this future reality that is ours in Christ, that he heard a loud voice from the throne and he said, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. That's the restoration of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And he will live with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and they will be his, their God Verse four, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think about these promises here. Death will be no more. Grief will be no more. Crying will be no more. Pain will be no more. That sounds like a pretty good day to me because the previous things have passed away. Why? Because we can be declared righteous, but in eternity we will be made righteous. The last contrast is law versus grace. Law versus grace. Look at verse 20 again. Paul says, the law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. We saw a few weeks ago that the purpose of the law in the scriptures was to reveal how sinful humanity was. If you're unfamiliar with this concept of the law, if you go back to the book of Exodus, God in the book of Exodus outlined very specifically his guidelines for his people. But the problem was we couldn't keep God's guidelines because let's go back to it. Because of verse 12 of Romans 5, because we are of the seed of Adam. We are sinners by nature, people who disobey the law of God. Now Paul says, Romans 5.20, that that law that was given to you and I simply multiplied the trespass. Paul says, y'all thought you were bad folks. The law just showed how bad y'all really are. Galatians chapter 3, same truth. Check this out. Paul says to the church in Galatia, why then was the law given? Here he goes. It was added for the sake of transgressions. It was meant to show you all how sinful that we really are until the seed to whom the promise would make, was made would come. Why did God outline for humanity his rules and the way that he wanted us to function? To show us that we were sinners who needed a savior. Think of it this way. This is, man, this is gonna be practical application. Some of you are gonna be like, I did this this week. You ready for this? If you leave church today and you go two streets over to a residential neighborhood here in Powell, and you can, can you go in that residential neighborhood and drive 55 miles per hour? It's really scary that some of y'all are not certain if you can drive 55 in a residential, by the way. <laughs> can you go in a residential neighborhood and drive 55 miles per hour? No. If that's the only thing you got from this message today is that you need to stop driving 55 in a residential neighborhood, I have done my job as your pastor. Now, what if, think about this, what if you go in that residential neighborhood and there is not a speed limit sign telling you that the speed limit is 25? Can you then drive 55 miles per hour? No. We all on the same page? We all good here? Everybody's got this? If any of y'all end up in jail this week, it's not for speeding. It's not because I didn't tell you, okay? No, you can't. Even if there's not a sign available, there's just some things that inherently are wired inside of us. Paul talks about this in Romans 2, the law of God written on our hearts. 
But there's some things inherently wired inside of us that we understand that in a residential neighborhood where families and children are present, that we cannot drive that fast. It's not allowed. Even if there's not a sign present telling us that we can. Now, let's say that you, you do, and you, you didn't see a sign because maybe some, some kids had taken the sign down or maybe it was uh, in the shop for repair or something, and you're driving 55 miles an hour. That cop's red and blue lights come on. They pull you over and they say, sir, ma'am, um, do you know how fast you were traveling? And you'd say, yeah, I was driving 55 miles per hour. And the officer says, well, you can't do that. If you look at that officer and you go, well, I didn't know I couldn't do that because there wasn't a sign. What's the officer going to say to you? That's neat. Here's your ticket. Yeah. Eventually, the law is going to get you and the law is going to expose your sinfulness because you knew better. Let's take it a step further. <laughs> How many of us, I'm going to raise my, I'm just going to keep my hand up, went on the highway this week and you saw the sign that said 65, and you said, you know what? I'm just preaching to the choir. I just might as well turn around and talk to myself. You say, you know what? I know that the speed limit says 65, but I'm just gonna go 70, because I know the phrase, five, you're fine, 10, you're mine, yeah? We all know it, we all know it. Don't even ask. some of y'all in here are like, I don't speed, now you're lying, so we got everybody covered, all right? We know there's, there's a great application of Paul's point. We know God's rules. We know God's law. And what do we do as humans? Yeah, but I mean, like, I don't, I'm just, I just went a little bit past it. I, I'm just going to, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah? And what's Paul remind us? Thus the law is accomplishing its purpose. It's showing the true condition of the human heart. That we're sinners by nature. And because of that, if Jesus doesn't intersect our stories, we are hopeless. We desperately need Jesus. So where the law exposed our sinfulness, Paul goes on to say Jesus steps into the story and grace multiplies. Where sinfulness abounds, God's grace is made available to sinners, multiplying even more. In Romans 5.15, two weeks ago, we saw this. Where God's grace in that verse, we said that word abounded in, in verse uh, 15 was this idea of superabounded towards sinners. It's the same word that was used in the Gospels referencing the feeding of the 5,000. We're using a little kid's happy meal of five loaves and two fish that Jesus multiplied it to feed upwards of 20,000 people. And by the time that that feeding was over, the Bible says in the Gospels that there was 12 baskets of leftovers that concept of the excess is the same word that's used here in first in Romans 5.15, talking about God's grace is made available in excess towards sinners. That where sin abounds, God's grace multiplies even more. But check this out. In verse 20, Paul uses a, a different word for us for the word abound. This isn't the same word that he used in verse 15 of, of superabound. This is actually the word God's grace hyperabounds towards us. Paul only used this word two times in all of his letters here and in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 4. Listen to what he said to the church in Corinth in his second letter. He said, I'm very frank with you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with encouragement and I'm overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. That word overflowing there is the same word that Paul is using in Romans 5.20 to describe God's abounding grace towards sinners. 
I'm not quite positive because I'm not a, a Greek scholar in any capacity, but it seems to me that this is like a very emotional word that Paul is using here. That Paul is like excited about what he's saying. You see that right there in 2 Corinthians 7, 4. I'm overflowing with joy. I mean, I imagine as Paul is penning Romans 5.20, where he's talking about the multiplying grace of God, I can imagine Paul, I'm going to step out the pulpit for a second. I can imagine Paul taking off his like left flip-flop, smacking his knee, clearing a spot, and just dancing. Because Paul's like, we were sinners, destined for hell, separated from God. But my goodness, because of the overwhelming, hyper-abundant, hyper-available grace of God to us, we don't have to be that way anymore. One of the most tragic things for me, y'all, is that salvation is available. Yet how often do I just keep it to myself? I mean, God wants to redeem sinners back to himself. And it is the greatest news in all of the universe. And Paul is communicating that emotion to us that we were sinners, but the grace of God hyper abounds toward us. We see the same concept, different words used all across the scriptures. John wrote in John 1.16, indeed, we have received grace upon grace from his fullness. That's the fullness of Jesus 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15, Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 9, 14, And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you. Listen, because of the surpassing grace of God for you. Where sin abounds, grace hyper abounds even more. What a gift. Verse 21, Paul says, last verse, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We saw last week that there was this tyrant, this reigning king over our lives known as sin, but sin must release its grip on us when we call out to Jesus for forgiveness. And the new king of my life is no longer sin. I'm not marked by death anymore, Paul reminds us here in verse 21. No, now life and righteousness define me. Eternal life is mine because in Adam we were marked by death. But in Christ we can be marked by eternal life, which is ours forever. This never-ending, hyper-abundant, available grace to us. That concept reminds me as we close of a story I read this week. I love this, of a city that had found this well at this park that so many people frequented. And this well that had been discovered relatively recently, it had gained quite a bit of attention. And so the man that was writing down this story, he he said one day he went to this park and there was a man standing there among this large crowd of people who were all drawing so much water from this well. And the man that had gone to visit, he asked one of these gentlemen on the side of this well, he said, hey, I got a question for you. He said, with all of these people that are constantly coming to this well day in and day out, taking so much water from it, does that well ever run dry? Well, the man set down his glass of water that he had recently drawn out of that well, and as he stopped drinking, he smacked his lips, and a big grin came across his face. He said, you know, sir, 
He said they've never been able to pump this well dry yet. They tried it a few years ago when they first discovered it, and they brought out as many fire engines as they possibly could, and they put them to work. They tried everything that they could to pump that well dry. But ultimately, what they discovered and found was what seems to be a never-ending river that flows right underneath our city. And I love what this guy says. So no, this well will never run dry. It never has, and it never will. And that's a reminder for me as we close out in these verses that Jesus offers a never-ending, never-taken-back, eternal life to those who repent of sin and put their life in his hands, and it never has an end. Verse 21 reminds us it's an eternal promise, a promise that's never going to run dry. Simple question to close. Has there ever been a moment in your story where you've personally given your life to Jesus Christ? Because if you remain in Adam, the Bible teaches us here in Romans 5 that you are separated from God for eternity. But Jesus' salvation is made available to all of us. To those who confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's the acknowledgement that I don't want to be boss of my life anymore, but I want to turn over, the Bible calls it lordship, to Jesus And we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. What does that mean? It means that 2,000 years ago, I acknowledge that Jesus Christ died in my place on a sinner's cross, that my sin put him there, and God's wrath against sinners was poured out upon him, that he became sin who knew no sin, so that his righteousness, his right standing with God could be applied to my account. Have you ever made that personal decision? And if not, gracious, I ask you every week, why not today? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the the reminder that your word is that, God, when we were helpless, that you came after us. Lord, when we were lost, you came on a rescue mission. Lord, when we were doomed for an eternity, Lord, you came to get us. I got to pray for any of my friends here this morning, those that are listening online or on the radio. God, I pray that if they're uncertain, if there's ever been that time in their story, where they've acknowledged their sinful state before you, Lord, their disobedience to you that has separated them from you for eternity. And God, if there's never been a point in their story where they've completely and wholly submitted themselves to Jesus and accepted what he did on the cross as payment for their sin, Lord, God, I pray that today would be a day that they do that. Lord, that even while we're singing, they would even cry out to you something like this. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner And I'm hopeless apart from Jesus. So I pray that Jesus would enter into my story and change my life in the now and in the eternity. And Father, on the authority of your word, we read in Romans 10, 9, that you say that they will be saved and their relationship with God restored. So God, I pray for any of my friends. If they're uncertain that they've ever done that, I pray that today would be the day. God, I pray now also that as we get ready to sing, that God, we'd sing in response to your word, Lord, joining in the chorus of angels who are already singing your praises. And God, what a privilege we have to lift our voices in unison with them. So God, I pray now as we sing that our voices echo through the corridors of heaven as we give you the praise you deserve. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.